Hey everybody, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. Thank you for being here. Life is wonderful. I know we're going through a hard time right now, and I hope each and every one of you is conscious of the fact that we get to choose our reality, and I think we should all be choosing consciously to support each other, to lifting everyone up and living a higher level of consciousness around the world. And if we make that our individual focus, then the entire world will shift. And not that I'm going to preach, but at the very least, I want to acknowledge challenging time for many of us right now. And I hope you're able to wake up in the morning today, smile, say thank you that I'm here for this heart that beats in my chest, for these eyes that open, for these legs that walk for me, for these lungs that breathe me. And just be grateful for being here and and smile and connect with everyone you encounter today. And today's podcast guest is going to dive deep into optimizing health. Nisha Winters joins me today to talk about how she overcame cancer on multiple occasions, what she thinks now after having worked with thousands of people around the world was the cause of these cancers and many other cancers, and how we can avoid it. It's not just a conversation about cancer. It's really a conversation about health. How should we be eating? Should we be exercising? What are the things that are kind of loading the gun and pulling the trigger on all of these different cancers and illnesses that exist? And are they maybe rooted in the same thing, the absence of health? So great conversation. Nisha absolutely blows my mind with her wisdom and her logical approach around just how to eat, how to approach your environment, uh, exercise. Is it too much for some people? And looking at things like heavy metal testing and saunas and just a lot of best practices around optimizing your environment your diet, and your health practices. A really, really great conversation. You're going to absolutely love. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by my favorite olive oil in the entire world, Fresh Pressed. The Olive Oil Club is something different. It's on a whole different level. If you haven't already tried it, you guys can check it out right now for a limited time. So what these guys do is they literally travel the world and find regions in the world that are harvesting oil now. So it's not always obviously in the same regions. Now I think they're in the Southern Hemisphere. They just got back from the Southern Hemisphere and they've procured a very limited amount of the highest quality, literally the best olive oils. And I've done a podcast with TJ and he told me about how he does it and, and you know how he finds the farms. And he said the three or four, I believe, of the olive oils that he had last year are in the top 10 rated in the entire world. And they have, believe it or not, like olive oil rating competitions. And they were four of the top 10 in the world, which is tremendous. And, and when you try these things, you're going to understand why this is not your typical store purchased bland, bitter, gross olive oil. This is this wonderful explosion in your mouth. Getfresh35.com. You're going to get hooked up with a bottle for a dollar. That's pretty awesome. So shout out to Fresh Press Olive Oil Company or Club and for hooking us up with this amazing product that I literally use every day. I think I consume food now, certain foods so that I can just consume olive oil. It's such an amazing thing. I might be addicted. Get fresh 35, the number 35.com to get hooked up with a large bottle of olive oil for a dollar. Guys, massive respect, massive appreciation for you being here. Have a wonderful day. Let's all lift each other up today. Enjoy the show. And we are live. Dr. Nasha, welcome. We're going to dive into your amazing career around the metabolic effects on cancer, and then hopefully dive into some amazing things that you're doing around the vagal nerve as well. So super excited to have you. Thank you for joining me. 
thank you so much. I love you and your work. And as we were saying right before we started videoing, it's that little guy and the picture behind you who you said is now eight years old that we mm-hmm. are doing what we're doing today. Right. And I think all of us, I mean, whether you have children or not, are really hoping to leave this rock better than we found it, at least <laughs> leading with our heart first and really trying to help, whether it be the younger generation or people currently existing with whatever it looks like to live their greatness and exude their light and ultimately live an illness-free life. So your commitment to cancer started very young for you, did it not? Like, I think it was 19 years old. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. That's very interesting. Yeah. You know, and I think when people hear about, you probably hear this, and I know I do in my profession, that people sort of assume that they were healthy. They're like, I was healthy until I got cancer. And it's such the weirdest thing for me to hear and also to see because I was kind of born onto this planet. When we talk about the kids, I was allergic to every single formula. And it's kind of funny because Mm. in 1971 in Wichita, Kansas, it was not hip to breastfeed. You know, we still see all the problems we have in relationship to that as well. But ultimately, that was instead of it occurring to anybody that maybe breast was best, they tried every single thing you can imagine. I ended up on a soy formula, which by the time I was nine years old, so this would have been you know 1980, I started menstruating. Like today, we don't think that's too weird. Wow. But back then, that was really weird, right? That was you know the average age was 12 to 13 years old, so I was way ahead of the game. Is it normal now for girls to menstruate by nine? Well, it's not normal, but it's common. common. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Frightening, right? And so we're seeing young girls like with red um, breast buds at seven, eight years old. We're seeing young girls menstruating. And this is now, even though we said it's common, it is being treated like it's normal and it's anything from, right? So that's horrifying. So looking back at my history between that and also what we learned later living on or around seven super fun sites, didn't know that, you know, until you start digging to realize what we're being exposed to. I lived near a bunch of military bases. I lived in an area that had a lot of tech industry or, uh, you know, building industry around airplanes. I lived in Wichita, Kansas, so beach, Boeing, Airjet, Learjet, wow. all of those big things. Talk about pollutants in the environment there. There were those pieces. We also, which we're going to really dive into in a bit on the vagal nerve, massive amounts of trauma, things like that. So on the the uh, sort of scale of one to 10 of what you could have experienced as a child, I was a 10 out of 10, which is part of what we now understand can set you up for a life of chronic illness and cancer as a young adult and beyond. So a lot of no surprises there. We were latchkey kids, parents divorced early on. So we fended for ourselves. And a lot of that looked like bags of Wonder Bread with cinnamon sugar toast pretty much as my three meals a day. (laughs) I worked at hot dog on a stick from age 12 to 18. And that was my go-to meal at the time because that was, we were too poor to have anything else. So living on just like, I understand those food desert concepts. So just to give your listeners a construct of what was going on, that it wasn't like I just woke up with cancer Mm -hmm. and it would still take many, many minutes. We're going to do this really quick. So I'm going to liberate the cat into the outdoors. (laughs) She wants to help so much. What was very fascinating to me is that doing the best we could in the circumstances we had, recognize that the majority of people are raised in such a way in toxicity, both emotionally from the environment, from their food supply. A lot of us don't even realize that we're just sort of insidious with these things that can increase our risk factors. It was still years later. I mean, 2008, I, sorry, I got my epigenetics track, so I knew what was going on there. But in 1996, I also learned that I had the BRCA gene, which is a lot of people know it as the Angelina Jolie gene. So these pieces were what it put together, but no wonder I had cancer at mm-hmm. age 14 first with cervical cancer, again at 16 and at 19, because they missed, I had so much 
irritable bowel syndrome, so many digestive issues, so many hormonal issues for so long, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, massive amounts of hormones from birth control pills to try and correct those symptoms for my, from the pharmacology side of things, that by the time I was diagnosed after ending up in an ER over and over and over again, over many months, by the time they realized what was actually going on, I was nearly dead. And so my organs were in end-stage failure. I had a nine-month belly full of malignant fluid. I had tumors in my liver, ovaries, in my pelvic cavity, all throughout my lymph nodes. And at that point, they realized I was in such bad shape that even a single dose of chemo would have killed me outright. So they said, if I did nothing, I'd be around for three months. And if I did something, I'd be around for maybe six. So, And they were afraid that if I took a single dose of chemo, it would kill me right out. So there in starts my journey, which we're almost, it'll be 29 years, September or October 21st of this year was my official diagnosis of stage four and stage ovarian cancer with organ failure. And that's what turned me into this whole world. This is why we're having the conversations we're having today. And part of my fascination is understanding that there's not a single trigger. It is not a genetic disease. Less than 5% of all cancers are. It was so much about diet, lifestyle, emotional traumas, triggers, dietary lifestyle, the people I hung out with, the environment I was in, how I took care of my body or didn't. It was accumulation of many, many things on top of kind of my genetic epigenetic blueprint that allowed itself to manifest. And as you were saying before we started this conversation, we'll all be faced with this at some point in some way. And even the World Health Organization says that by 2030, our worldwide cancer statistics are expected to double. And if you are living in North America, you're expected to one in two men with cancer and one in 2.4 women in cancer at this time, right now, to have cancer. supposed to double. Interesting. So I guess where the first place my mind goes is, I know you've written a book on it, so I'm sure Mm -hmm. there's many answers in there, but has anyone started to create kind of a list of best practices? Like you went through a whole number of things there, like it's genetic, it's environmental, it's food, it's stress, it's all these things. But for myself as a parent and for myself as a human, I want to be able to like, hey, like, what are those things that are insidiously impacting our life that we don't even know are there? Maybe we should start paying attention to, and maybe we could just jump off at that point. I think that's a great point, point to jump because I think you're right. As I said before, people will come to me and say, well, I was healthy till I had cancer. And then I explained to them, well, we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to look a little deeper and see if that was actually true. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you after tens of thousands of patients and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of labs and genetics that I've been able to look at, that's absolutely not true. So a lot of us are walking around not knowing what's simmering inside. Mm-hmm. So what your suggestion of what kind of standards of practices are out there? Well, in standard of care, there aren't any. Let's just put it that way. Their idea of prevention a standard is smashing your breast tissue with radiation every few years. If you have a family history, they do it more often. And ironically, if you have a BRCA gene, the BRCA gene is actually ignited by radiation. So we're having you do it twice a month. Can you clarify what the BRCA gene is? The BRCA gene or SNP, a lot of people, like I said, know it as the Angelina Jolie. This is a genetic predisposition that increases your risks of certain breast and ovarian cancers in women and even some prostate cancers in men and pancreatic cancers in both, both sexes. So what that genetic hiccup really is, though, is a problem with methylation. So it's how we are utilizing our nutrition, our nutrients, our B vitamins from our food sources, which also means that our guts have to be intact to have the right cofactors to utilize those B vitamins appropriately to get into our bloodstream and get into the receptor sites to make our epigenetics express better, to make our DNA 
a little hardier. So having a break at the BRCA gene means that you do not repair your DNA as easily as everybody else. And so you're a bit more vulnerable to things like stress, toxicity, and very specifically radiation. And so when we start to compel these women with this genetic predisposition to do mammograms twice a year, where you are smashing and radiating the breast tissue, that's frankly malpractice. There are safe ways of testing the breast tissue without radiation to that tissue and smashing that vulnerable tissue, which we can talk about later or now, but there's definitely ways of assessing the breast health without causing more insult to injury, especially to those high risk populations. Yeah. So you went through a number of things there that were dietary things that are going to maybe predispose you to potentially having these genes express or these symptoms, these cancerous scenarios express. What have we drawn a direct correlation with over time that says, hey, these are the things that we know are going to cause cancer? Because in my world, there's a lot of talk around mTOR, right? There's a lot of talk around, hey, we're eating too much protein. You're driving these metabolic pathways too hard. In other worlds, there's there's talk about soy. There's obviously talk about sugar. There's talk about inflammation. There's so many things that could be checked in those boxes. I'd love to just kind of walk through. Yeah, sure. Well, and that's what the beauty. So just a quick backdrop here, the metabolic approach to cancer, which mm-hmm. is my book, it has a beginning point of the 10, you know, because I talk about the 10 terrain factors that create or negate your health, you know, depending on that. So when you talked about sort of the SOP on, you know, how do we start to standardize the way people really assess their health, that survey is a great place to start for people because it helps you understand your blind spots. And it looks at your epigenetics, your metabolic health, which would mTOR would fall under that category, your environmental toxicant exposure, your microbiome health, your immune system health, your inflammation, your circulation and angiogenesis, your hormonal health, your stress and circadian rhythm response, as well as your mental emotional health. So those 10 factors are what I explore with every single patient and what those 10 questions or those 10 sections with 10 questions under each gives you an idea of maybe what your blind spots are and what your priorities are. So that's stage one. So perfect. So easy, right? And yeah. then people, I tell people, like, even if you just go, yeah, I'm, I've got six out of 10 on the metabolic part, I'm going to go just read that chapter. So you don't have to inhale the book from front to back. You can t- focus on what's important to you. So tying it back around of what do we know that can impact the outcomes of these situations? So specifically to the BRCA gene and the genetic expression, some of the foods that have been very well studied and very well established to change our epigenetic expression and lower our risk, even if we carry that BRCA gene to actually manifesting cancer, are things like cruciferous vegetables, right? Very simply stated. And it's so funny how many people, especially in the West, say, I hate my broccoli. I hate my collard. It hurts my stomach. You know, we're really averse to vegetables and leafy greens in this culture. And yet it is so critical to our ability to methylate and detoxify. Right. So I know you're deep into this low-carb, high-fat world, as am I. And you have two camps, right? You have the carnivore camp that says, Mm -hmm. hey, all these vegetables are doing really bad things to you. And then you have the other camp that says, hey, there's a lot of positive things in there. And it sounds like you stand more on the side of like, hey, there's probably more uh, utility in an omnivore style diet. Is that kind of where your stance is? And yeah. 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 I mean, I tell people when you get too far of any extreme, so if you're in the vegan camp or the carnivore camp, they can be very powerful strategies short term for a variety of different reasons. Okay. So that being said is you can use any dietary approach therapeutically for a period of time. But our day-to-day, every day, all the time throughout our life, we should focus on what is in common of all of the positive outcome diets out there for cancer is it should be real food. 
I know that seems like a shock to people. But it's that, that all comes in a box, right? Thank you. All well, real food comes in a box. And that's really a new invention of our time, right. really last 100, 150 years, really in the last 50 years. So it should be real food. It should really be ideally seasonal and local because that's going to be what's in, akin to your own microbiome and your own environment. It should definitely be as clean of quality as possible, which is today you have to go so out of your way to find that. It's Meaning pesticide free primarily. Is that how you would pesticide, define clean? Glyphosate, herbicide for like all those things. I mean, today we're probably finding the largest problem in our diet and world today is glyphosate. Mm-hmm. It's a endocrine disruptor. It destroys our microbiome, which therefore destroys our mind, destroys our immune system. It cracks me up because we've been saying for how long now in the sort of registered dietitian world that you need to be eating your five to 10 servings of grains a day to reach your your important nutritional needs. Or if you're a vegan or in the vegetarian camp, you're also pushing still a lot of grains and legumes. So this is where some of the carnivore stuff really hits spot on is that they're correct. When you remove those things, you tend to kind of avoid some of the biggest problems because legumes and grains sequester glyphosate, even organic folks. Yeah. Those that glyphosate is not reading signs, right. you know, it's not like, oh, that's an organic field. I can't land there right. when it has two miles of air, water and soil distribution. And so right. especially I, when 90 percent of it's coming from California, right, which is like the, uh, mo- the, the most populated, the most polluted. Yep. And it, you can't even find like even organic wine in California now is all tainted with glyphosate. Totally. You know, and that's the thing is I tell people is it's not that the poor grain or legume was the problem. It's what it's bathed in. And that is where the carnivores have a little bit of a leeway right now to say, yeah, maybe this can help people who have a really destroyed microbiome for a period of time, get on a carnivore for a bit. But here's the wild thing. If you're still eating meat, that's eating that shitty stuff, excuse right. me, that's yeah. still, you're getting the same thing. You yeah. are what they eat, but also what I was know. thinking exactly that about like beef liver, right? Beef liver is such a big thing in the carnivore community and most people's community. But if oh. you're eating meat that's been bathed in glyphosate, you can't win. Exactly. You end up in the same exact boat. So when you kind of bring those edges in, you said that kind of thoughtful carnivore level that's got the thoughts of quality, seasonal, local, regional, just clean, 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 then you have kind of the foundation that we can all work from and then tweak it as needed for whatever our therapeutic needs are. So a lot of people don't know that mTOR is also very high in gluten. Okay. So mTOR gets kicked off. It gets kicked off by dairy. It gets kicked off by high meat. And so when I also have people on the carnivore side saying, no, nope, it doesn't. It does not cause insulin spikes. It's not a problem. No, eating a steak is not the same as eating a candy bar. If you have the APOE2, the ASCL1, the APOE34 genes, guess what? It is. And I'm married to a man whose genetics, when he eats a steak, even though it's his favorite food group on the planet, I can look at his glucose and his his ketones the next morning and it, it speaks for itself. There is no dogma here. So insulin's up, ketones are down. Every single time, every single time. For me, I don't even like meat, but my body needs it Mm -hmm. because of different things. And it will shift over. Like it's, I have a different experience with it, but I have very different genetics than my husband. Mm -hmm. And so we look at these things that we have to look at those nuances as well. But again, for the most part, we all kind of stick in that middle zone. We're probably pretty good. And then depending what you need, when you need it, bringing in, like for instance, you can be in ketosis as a vegan, you can be in ketosis as a heavy meat eater. Metabolic flexibility is really what we're talking about here. And you can get there with fasting, exogenous ketones, low carbohydrate, restrictive diet, uh, caloric restriction. There's so many different ways to achieve that. And you have to start to try on different things for size and see what works for you. 
right. and which are end all be all goals. So there's nothing inherently wrong with a steak. It's just the protein itself. It could be fish. It could be chicken. It could be anything that's going to cause the same mTOR stimulus. And too much and too little, right? So some of us need more, you know, when I have patients who are very, very hectic, very sick, they're metabolically wasting. Western medicine, they want to put them on boost and ensure, and they are like, eat everything you can, calorie, calorie, calorie. And the crazy thing is you could put that patient on 15,000 calories a day and it's not going to do anything. Right. Because they've switched gears. They're like, they're burning all your muscle mass. So that patient population must have extra protein in that time to survive. And yes, Mm -hmm. there is the possibility of some of it going to gluconeogenesis and stimulating mTOR. But in that therapeutic window, and you have a patient that's succumbing to basically starving to death because the cancer is eating its resources, you have to switch it up. My favorite strategy actually in that patient population is fasting them, which seems totally counterintuitive, but it basically makes the cancer cell way more vulnerable. So when I can fast them as well as get them into some exercise moments, and then maybe some other oxidative therapies, be it standard of care interventions or high dose IV vitamin C or hyperbaric oxygen, we can actually stress and kill that cancer cell and kind of take back the range of the metabolic flexibility. Right. Is the target of the fasting in that instance just to keep insulin levels down or is it just like complete caloric restriction? So would there be any type of utility in using like a protein sparing modified fast type, like just some fats or yeah. do you think just yeah. nothing? And this is a great question because I love it. Everybody wants a black and white answer. Mm-hmm. It will vary from patient to patient. So I have some patients who need to be on like the prolon fasting therapy, fasting mm-hmm. diet program, mostly out of their psychology, not their reality, because right. it feels like, and it makes their family feel better because if they're not eating, everyone starts to get really wigged out. We totally. get, <laughs> like, Fine, isn't it? right. It's right. really weird. And you're speaking to a woman who did a five day fast water fast last week, and I'm in my second day today. So I'm resetting after some challenges of travel in the last few weeks. And that's what I can do. I can default and reset myself very quickly with just a few days of eating nothing. And the same thing with my cancer population. One of the theories that Dr. Longo taught me years ago before he became well-known and before he got the prolon fasting mimicking diet out there was the reason why chemo probably even had the effect that it had at all is because most people feel too crummy to eat. To eat. <laughs> so I've seen that. So when you then bring on chemo in a fasted state, you're stressing the cancer cell even more. It becomes more responsive to the therapy and it protects the healthier cells around it because they have all kinds of cool built-in mechanisms to deal with that fasted state that our cancer cells do not. So interesting, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in this population, we, we struggle, or at least we try to advocate some fasting, but everyone's so concerned with muscle wasting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any thought on what duration would be a great starting point for people who are actually concerned with muscle and what frequency, right? So oftentimes I'll advocate people have at least one day a week of a 24-hour fast. And some people are even afraid to do that. Have you seen any significant muscle loss in people doing short-term fasting? I love that question. Now, I think if someone that was metabolically inflexible jumped on board with fasting, you might see that. But when I'm working with my patient population, I'm supporting, I'm, I'm usually bringing on whatever, I'm bringing on other things to support them. I'm working on lowering inflammation, which has an impact on your muscle wasting. I'm, I'm working on the stress response, which has an impact on muscle wasting. I'm working on other nutrients that are keeping them in a good equilibrium of that process. In general, When I'm looking at a patient population, and really, I think this would probably be good for all of us, and it's so weird. I mean, I'm going to tell you, and you're going to laugh because you are in this camp with me, but I always tell people, all of us should probably be fasting 13 hours a day, every single day. Mm -hmm. And people like, they kind of scoff at me like, oh, I can't do that. And you're like, really, that's finishing dinner at six and eating at 7 a.m. 
most of that through the night. Right. And the crazy part is because you've probably seen the studies, but in the last couple of years, we've had multiple studies that showed that less than 12% of Americans can do that. That's how broken we are. I know. I know. Right. So what you'll see is the clue. I tell people, this is the question to ask yourself. First of all, challenge yourself. Can you do a 13 hour fast? If you cannot, you are metabolically broken. That increases your risk of cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, obesity, cardiovascular disease, you name it. It's like that right there is the soup du jour that you will have if you do not change that flexibility now. So, starting so with when this, you say can't, you just mean like they feel very hungry. Yeah, they don't, they feel like they're crashing a little bit. Have to have a snack after dinner, have to have something right before they go to bed, might wake up in the middle of the night, have to go and do a refrigerator run, eat the second they get out of bed, feel a little hangry or get nervous or start really obsessing over their next meal. Those are clues mm-hmm. that you are metabolically inflexible and you need to start to work and challenge your body. So maybe you can only get through 10 hours initially. Great. Well, then work towards 11 and then work towards 12. To get on a daily, everyday 13-hour would do all of us a load of good. We'd also be able to do a little autophagy and start to take the garbage out a bit more. You don't do much at that point, but it does click in. After about four hours, you actually start to go into autophagy. But usually by the time we start to, we shove something else in our mouth. Time to eat again. <laughs> exactly, right? So then I love your suggestion, which people, when they feel like they've mastered the 13 hours every day, and they're safe, well, let's push them to a 16 to 18 hour a day, a couple times a week, one to two times a week. That's my recommendation. And then beyond that, if I have people who are really looking at longevity, looking at cancer treatment or prevention, looking at upregulating their immune system, looking at a deeper level of autophagy, because maybe they have a lot more garbage to take out of the building than they could do on a day fast. At that point, a three to five day is really recommended monthly. And it's this moment when you hit about day three that you actually start to release other chemicals in your body that upregulate the ability to hold on to human growth hormone and support your muscle wasting. So it's a weird thing. In that first three days, it's almost like you could lose a little bit, but by day three, you pop right back out and you're making it again. And so that's pretty cool. One of the ways to offset that loss of it in the interim is to exercise gently in a fasted state. Whether that's, let's say, hour 12, that's when you hit the gym, you know, if you're fast or do your little home hit workout or even take a walk. Do you usually advocate people getting into ketosis before fasting or is it okay for someone to switch right out from a high carb diet into acid state? Well, it's funny because guess what? My sister-in-law who just did this with us, she doesn't eat a ketogenic diet. By day two of her doing the water fast with us, we did give her a little bit of avocado one day and some bone broth in the mix. She was blowing ketones too, 1.8, 2.3. What people don't understand is when you're metabolically flexible, you should show some ketones after a 13-hour fast. So if you don't, not even trace, if you're not showing 0.2, 0.4 in your keto mojo, then right there is a clue if you're doing 13 hours and not seeing it. If you do 16 hours and still don't see it, that's still a clue. If you get to day, you know, 24, 36, 72, 96 days, hours of fasting and you're still not seeing ketones, you really are in trouble and you probably are feeling pretty cruddy. And at that point, you might be seeing really far dips in your blood sugar and feeling even worse. That's someone who's going to need a little bit more tailored metabolic support from a coach or a clinician who's well-rounded to help them maybe bring on some MCTs, bring on some other things that can do like the fasting mimicking protocol through like Prolon. So there's definitely, everyone's different and you kind of won't know till you get in there. But a lot of people, they've been on a long trip or something and realized, oh my gosh, I hit eight hours and I thought I was going to die. People start to explore this. I just had a gal who finished a course. She's a nutritionist and taught a class. And she, for bonus, had everyone try a 24 to 36 hour fast and report on it. Now these are 
19 to 23-year-olds in a college environment. Only one of her 60 students was able to do it. Now, that should scare the living crap out of anybody to know how sick our next generations are. Like, that's what frightens me is we're even eat subsequently. Thank you, epigenetics. If you don't correct them, they get worse as the lineage goes down. So that's where you see the studies that folks born after the year 1980 are likely not going to outlive their parents. That's where these things come from, right? That's a World Health Organization assessment. We are sicker today because we're more metabolically broken from the get-go and we're coming out broken. Right. So how much protein would you suggest? So in the muscle building world, it starts at one gram per pound. And I know some people say half a gram per pound, like a gram per kilo is much more appropriate for longevity. So there's always this balance in our world between we have this objective short term or or otherwise. And how do we balance that in your eyes? Any suggestions? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, first of all, like in the cancer world specifically, because it's different. You think about a cancer body, it's got a different metabolic process happening than it does in a non-cancering body. So typically when people think ketogenic diet and cancer, they're thinking you're putting them on a carnivore diet. You're not, you're actually pretty much protein limiting. So 0.5 to 0.8 is kind of the, you shoot for that per, you know, gram. That's on a cancer diet? Uh Uh-huh. That's on a cancer. And then depending on if they are severely cachectic or if they are still actually really physically rocking it and doing a lot of good exercise and whatnot, which would be the best thing you could do for any cancer patient, then they can probably get up 0.8 to 1 gram per kilogram. We really don't want our cancer population above one gram per kilogram. So we're keeping it pretty moderated. So a lot of people out there in the kind of vegan world are saying, oh, vegan for cancer. I'm like, well, what you get with that population is massive amounts of carbohydrate, massive amounts. You are hitting your protein needs, but you're also to achieve those getting way, 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 way high up in the glucose and insulin issues. So is there a direct correlation in what you've seen? And I've asked many people this question, but I'm curious on your, your clinical experience with yeah. higher amounts of protein actually perpetuating more cancer growth. Well, it depends. So in certain cancer populations, I have definitely seen that to be true. Like my prostate cancer patients, and this again, not a blanket statement, observational of certain types that seem to respond. So there's that. There's certain melanoma processes, especially BRAF mutations seem to have some of these issues where we probably want to make it more of a Mediterranean-centric, higher fish intake versus red meat, maybe not use so much of the saturated fats, maybe stay more in the olive oil family for your fat consumption versus going to town on tallow, for instance. You know, So there's that population for sure. There are definitely other populations in the, in the cancer communities that actually do much better, which is a lot more fasting and a little bit more caloric restriction in the times of progressive growth. And there's certain cancers, like certain glioblastomas, that should likely stay in a therapeutic level, so above three in their blood ketones of ketosis for the rest of their lives, hopefully rest of their very long, vital, healthy, happy lives. Because they tend to, when they get out of it, it just seems to set a fire off. I see this over and over. So when you talk about, again, this is never black and white, and it drives people crazy. When I'm on the forums, when I'm at conferences, patients calling us like, "What? how do I eat? I'm like, well, let me look at all of your data and we'll let you know how to eat in this moment because your data should also change. As mm-hmm. we are creating you, you will be changing and your needs will change. Specifically to the general population, when we look at, just evolutionarily speaking, we weren't always grazing 24-7. We didn't always have access to things all the time. So there'll be times of the year you need more protein. Or there'll be times of the year you'll be naturally more in ketosis because of the lack of things you can access. There'll be times of the year we have less vegetable matter, fresh foods. Those are the places that again becoming more seasonal, becoming more of a locavore and a seasivore really changes things up for you as well because you start to 
mimic nature and you start to get closer to your DNA match versus the mismatch that happens just living on the planet today with accessibility to everything all the right. time. That's always such a paradigm shift when I say that to people. They're always surprised to hear that you're supposed to eat seasonally. And I was like, well, why wouldn't you? Right? <laughs> people just haven't thought about it. So are there any foods or food groups perhaps that you would think should just be removed? Like we've talked about some of them. So we talked about obviously grains not being awesome. We talked about anything really containing glyphosate not being awesome. Anything else that comes to mind is like, hey, we should probably avoid these basics. I think people like to hear, you understand people like to have rules, right? Like I want to hear black and white. Um, And you don't have to. I was just curious if there's anything like you personally that these are things that I just, if they're on my plate, I just absolutely won't touch them. You know, in my mind today, what I wish that was never available to us anymore was gluten. Just period. Like we just took that off. Because tell me why it's so bad. Because there's so many camps that go, oh, gluten is not that bad. I'll, tell me why it's bad. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, the gluten of today, I have a patient who said, it ain't Jesus's wheat. And that is so true. It is not, <laughs> it is not where we started. So right. quick background. We brought in all of our wheat, kind of our ancient grains from Russia until the Cold War times. And at that point, we lost all access to that. And the U.S. basically paid all of our farmers, subsidized all of our farmers in the United States to stop growing all the massive thousands of different varietal crops that we did up until that point in time and said, we have a supply and demand issue. So when did that happen approximately? Do you know? 40s, 50s. Okay. Okay. And that's kind of that Cold War era. So we were like, stop growing all these beautiful, diverse things. Hello, microbiome diversity. Okay. And we need you to start to churn out this supply that we can no longer get from our brothers abroad. In doing so, we also went into a lab and said, we got to make it faster. We have to make it higher content. So we basically made fatter heads of higher glucose. We increased the gluten content of the hybridized grain that we started to grow in this country. And we monocropped the hell out of our out of you know North America sure. and then shut down all these other options and then created instead of stopping once we kind of hit our stride, we still kept it going. We still subsidize these farmers today to grow this stuff instead of this stuff. So that was one big hit to a system where we already had about a one in fifteen hundred chance of celiac disease or HLADQ epigenetic hiccups or leaky gut issues or sort of gluten sensitivity. We already had that in our world that already been there since the change when we moved from hunter gatherer into more of the agriculturist. That's when we made the shift about 4,000 years ago through that whole swipe called the fertile crescent of the Mediterranean regions, which also, by the way, has the highest levels of HLADQ genes. That's where it came from, which is also the highest incidence of celiac. So how cruel for the poor Italians, they have some of the highest incidence of celiac in the world. Luckily, they also don't eat this worst quality of gluten that we do in this country. So they've likely kept themselves alive a little bit longer in this. But in this country, we had that first hit that really started to increase our symptoms. A really interesting, fun side note, up until whenever we'd have a world war, world war one or two, we'd go into bread rations. There's lots of really cool studies that show that people's health exponentially improved worldwide when we went into bread rations. In the 1940s, in your old like DMS, your ICD-9, your DSM books of mm-hmm. like diagnostic imaging books, we actually called schizophrenia bread brain. That was what it was known as at the time. So we have known for a very long time that we've had problems with wheat and gluten mm-hmm. in particular. We love our bread. We're bread horse because it's hitting the dopamine in our brain and making us all junkies. So we're all out of little bread heads. And so there's that piece. The next big hit, 1971, is when we started to introduce glyphosate into the market. I have to grow up in Kansas. 
hello, in one of the first testing areas of this. I was born in 1971. So you take people who already had those genetic predispositions. You take now a new chemical to the system that now became really fully part of all of our food system by 1996. And now it's everywhere and you can't even get it out of the rainwater for crying out loud. You now have something that inequivocally completely disintegrates the gut barrier that we know for a fact, people like Dr. Huber and Dr. Stephanie Sinef and others who've been studying glyphosate impact on GI tract. Now you have one in nine to one in 10 people having gluten sensitivity. And it wasn't the poor gluten's fault. It's what we've done for it. Right. So if you're one of those eight or nine or seven or eight that isn't sensitive, are you okay with it? So I'm not. not And we can look at their insulin response. So gluten spikes insulin in a tremendous, tremendous way. A couple studies Mm -hmm. came out about comparing a candy bar to a piece of bread. It's like there's no difference, right? The other side of it is that we can definitely watch. I check insulin, insulin growth factor, hemoglobin A1C in every one of my patients and regularly, at least every three months. And you can see someone who's been eating gluten. Like my patient, I tell them like, you can lie to me, but your labs won't, you know? (laughs) So there's no way around that. We can also see it in just the daily, like continuous glucose monitoring or daily looks at fasted glucose and fasted ketone states to see the impact of this as well. So because of our metabolic inflexibility problems, because of our hyper permeable guts now, I just don't see why we can get so much from so many other food sources that this just seems like if we just stopped production today, we'd all probably be better for it. Yeah. I have some experts that have come on the show in the past that have said maybe occasionally putting it in. So like an immune therapy, right? Like right, almost like a hormetic stress. Any thoughts with that? Yeah, but not from US. I wouldn't do it from this source here. It's a completely different response. I mean, you travel to Europe and eating gluten in bread in Europe is not the same thing. It's very different, isn't it? It is. is. I'm like a binge abroad. (laughs) So yeah. Awesome. So anything else that you see, you start with gluten as saying that's something we should all eliminate. Is there anything else that comes to mind is like, hey, pull this out? It's so hard because I'm such that person who I'm a foodie. I right. love to try different things. I love the concept of diversity. But really, there is benefit in most of our food groups at some different times, depending on where you're living. So I'm going to throw this one out there because you said in the beginning of the podcast is soy. Tell me your opinions on oh, soy because you said it was one that yeah. impacted you. Very much. So I'd love to hear what that looks like. So kind of, you know, again, I've watched both camps duke it out about soy good, soy bad, soy cause cancer, soy not cause cancer, like over and over for so long. Again, I know I'm my own N equals one to know how it impacted me. And I know it's a hot, awful mess. So I know for me, I avoid it. But what my personal conclusion, my opinion, it's also based on a lot of other research and a lot of other just experiences clinically, is that unless you were born in an environment where this was a natural part of your diet from birth, and even pre-birth. So they're showing that like mothers who ate soy that live in Japan, who are eating this through caring of the baby and having their child, right? And everybody's starting there. Unless you have that estrobolome, okay, which is the microbiome that knows how to deal with the lectins in that and knows how to respond from your hormonal status to that, you're probably not a good candidate for it. And then there's, that's one of my caveats. The other caveat is I would love for someone to prove to me a clean glyphosate free soy product in this country in the in North America. I'd love it. Like show it to me, show me the data because from the people that I study with people like Dr. Huber and stuff, it's not possible to find a glyphosate free form of soybean, soybean oil, soy anything. Sure. Is it possible to find a glyphosate free anything? I think that may be the better question rather than saying, what should we take out? What can we actually eat? Um, Is our best opportunity then meat on mass and maybe some fat? Fat will carry glyphosate too, won't it? No, because it's water soluble. 
So that's a really powerful thing. And interestingly enough, one of the best ways to get glyphosate out of your body, and I learned this from Dr. Huber, love it. And actually the way they learned about it is they started using it on crops to break it down in the soil. And they're like, well, cool. If that works on the soil, when it works in our soil, which is a sauerkraut juice. Right. That's what Dr. S- I had Dr. Sneff on the podcast. She <laughs> said that and apple cider vinegar. Yeah, exactly. They break down the malic acid, can break that down. The butyrate and other things inside the sauerkraut can break it down. And then when you can hydrate and sweat it out, you can clear it out of your body. So I do tell people that are still eating organic grains and legumes, they have to do their due diligence to get that crap out of their body on a regular basis. And so I do test all my patients on their glyphosate levels pre, post, during. We also test them if they've gone like up to California for a wine tasting vacation. We test, it's always high. You know, it's fascinating. And then my friends who you know, are really staunch vegans and vegetarians. I'm like, well, let's do some testing and see where we are. Guess what? That's my population that has the highest levels of glyphosate I see. So what negative effects are they seeing? So I get so many bodybuilders that come into my life and they say, man, because I'm very anti-gluten. I'm like, dude, take it out. It's not benefiting you. I'm like, oh, but I like bagels. And I was like, I don't give a shit if you like bagels. Find some gluten-free bagels. You don't eat it. But they're so resistant to it. So they don't immediately feel benefits. Maybe because they're addicted in the mind. They're getting that dopamine hit. Um, tell me why, tell me what they would be experiencing as far as negative effects. Sure. Well, first of all, the reason why you have those who say that is also in gluten, we have what's called glutamorphogen. Okay. So I'm not kidding when I tell you it makes us a bunch of dope heads. Mm -hmm. So that means that it creates an opiate response. So people who say that to you are literally addicted. So what they need to do is they need to deal with their food addictions. That's what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And they're, I'm not being mean. That's just fact. Oh my God, that's like, you can talk to like Dr. Vishdani from Cyrex Labs, who's an immuno immunologist who looks at that. He's like, for people who need to give up gluten, they sometimes have to also give up dairy for a while because you get caseomorphogens as well. And some people do well with it. Some people don't. And a lot of people will see they go hand in hand. So initially when I have people letting go of this, I have them pull out casein rich dairy products. We can usually still get away ghee, butter and whole cream if they still want that. And they don't have any lactose snips or anything like that. But we can typically get away with that piece, but those things are truly addictive. So when people are telling you that they're just dealing with their food, their food addictions, it's that simple because really there are tons of great non-glutinous bagel recipes out there. Five years ago, they had an argument today, the industry, the biggest industry out there in the food industry is gluten-free products mm-hmm. you know, and grain-free and low carb free. I mean, thank you, Siete tortillas. <laughs> a lot of my call, my patients who were like, I can never do this without a tortilla. Well, now they have some options. The thing I worry about is, well, what's in the Siete, like what's in the tapioca now? Are we starting to do the same? But from what I've been told, you don't have to spray and ripen those types of crops the same way you do barley and oats and corn and wheat. So a lot of the tapiocas, the quinoas, the millets, actually millet is still gets ripened, but some of most of those others don't get the spray. They don't get the roundup spray to make it roundup ready for harvest. So that is at least a little bit better in most cases, but your clients who are saying that that's where you want to explore to them their emotional attachment, what's going on there. Cause we don't have that. We don't need it to survive. And again, I'll tell you what my worst patient population were my patients that were carb addicted and hardcore exercisers, because both of them are releasing endorphins. So they're really dealing with some addictive personality issues. And they likely have SNPs like MAO and BDNF and other things that are kind of getting in their own way. So, you know, we use exercise and food as an escape. So I will definitely probably get some mail from this, but it's like, no, I talk about it all the time. Good, good. 
you know, a lot of people know of the story of my patient, Allison Gannett, who she gives full permission because she shares it everywhere. But this is a woman who was a pro ski jumper, pro mountain biker, owned her own company called Rip and Chicks. Hardcore, ended up with a uh, brain tumor, terminal brain tumor. It'll be seven years, I think, in August, six or seven years out from her terminal diagnosis that she's still kicking it. And the biggest thing, she was a, pretty much a vegan, hardcore exerciser made all the switches in her diet, but she was not willing to change her exercise. And because of the parameters of the things I test for, we were able to see that her over-exercising was, guess what? Overstimulating mTOR, insulin, insulin growth factor, cortisol, estrogen. It was feeding her cancer like no tomorrow. Wow. So the hardest job I had with her was getting her from over-exercising. And that was her biggest addiction to ever break. And now she coaches others and she coaches all the pro- athletes and stuff out there because you can test. Like if I look at someone and I'm, I'm looking at their chronometer, I'm looking at all their stuff. I'm looking at their sleep patterns or HRV technologies and knowing they're sleeping great, knowing that they're theoretically doing great stuff with their stress, knowing their diet is perfect. I start to say, tell me how much you're exercising because it's just as bad to do nothing. Right. As it is to do too much. Okay. Well, now you just open up can of worms. Yay. So, you know, you know, this demographic mine was like, if anything, they're not going to be exercising too little, yeah. I'm sure, right? And I was that way for a long time. I was a three-a-day kind of guy when I was competing. And certainly, there was an addiction there uh, and an escapism. But I'd love to talk about how do we know? Like, is it just basing on HRV or, or what are we exploring How that what that looks like? Well, a lot of times that'll be the patients. You, you just even do the daily glucose and ketone checks. That can give you some pretty good Yeah, for sure. And it'll be like, why? Especially when people say, God, my ketones are gorgeous, but my glucose is always high. So for me, glucose is high above 85. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I'm actually, I mean, mine, I know I have something going on if it hits like 80, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm usually somewhere in the 60s or the 70s. My husband, who was the hardcore, he was a pro at, uh, triathlete, the whole bit, his blood sugars, it was crazy. I mean, we could get him into good high ketosis, but his blood sugars were still like 95 to 115. Wow. That was over exercising. When he pulled back and kind of pulled up Mark Sisson and started doing less is more, like 20 minute hit workouts twice a week, blood sugars dropped below 80. It was like, boom, that was the trigger for him. So, and because of his addiction to exercise, he had to work on that piece because then he was like, like, I wanted him to go for a run or a bike. Or like, I was like, get out of my house. You know, like mm-hmm. those things that once it finally caught up and stabilized, he at 51 years old has a much hotter body now than he did when he was 20 something, three a day, hardcore training. He is so much more even keel mentally, emotionally, every aspect of his being is like stellar. And he really doesn't work out anymore. It's all just like... We get out and paddleboard, we go for a hike, or he went for a mountain bike ride the other day and he's always working stuff in the yard. He literally is just in motion. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to focus, he doesn't have to compartmentalize exercise anymore to have this ripped 51 year old hot bod, not dad bod. Like it's crazy. So it sounds like insulin and inflammation are the two markers that are maybe most important across the board. Nailed it. And yeah. for all chronic illness, right? Yeah. Not just cancer. Yeah. Awesome. And if you're over-exercising, you're creating a lot of oxidative stress. You're creating a lot of lactic acid buildup. Lactic acid, actually, we check LDH. Lactate, you know, lactate dehydrogenase is a marker of mitochondrial insufficiency, but it's also a marker of tumor burden. And so it's like you, if you're over-exercising and you're dealing with cancer, you will be feeding the cancer. Mm-hmm. So that's a great summary of all the food and metabolic considerations. I'd love to switch a little bit because you did mention some interesting points around environment. So you said you grew up in a tech environment, you grew up in a potentially polluted environment. And that's something that 
is massive. I think it's tremendous. And most people just kind of gloss over it, right? We live inside a house that we shouldn't be living in. It's probably loaded with chemicals that we shouldn't be breathing. And people just don't regard it. And then you add like makeup and perfumes and candles and stuff on top of that. So I think people don't acknowledge. I'd love for you to speak about how those are impacting one health to cancer. Again, since the 1960s, we've introduced over 80,000 new chemicals to our environment with less than 200 of them properly tested. That should be your clue, number one. Number two, when we do studies, we typically look at one agent and one target and see the outcome. We're like, oh, that's innocuous. That's no big deal. But when IARC, which is a huge third-party research institute for cancer worldwide, started doing studies a couple of years ago about the cumulative effect of a few of these things in your bucket, that's when everyone started getting scared. They're like, oh my God. It's like when you pour bleach and ammonia into the toilet and you have to get out because you're now poisoning yourself. It's like those sure. conditions, that's what's happening inside of us. Right. We've started to understand things like metal toxicity, right? That if you're eating too much fish, if you're if you've got a lot of amalgams that are really busted and broken down, if you're living in certain areas where you've got a lot of air pollution that you're breathing in, you might be super high in things like methyl mercury, ethyl mercury, which are incredibly, incredibly toxic. A lot of these metals, by the way, cadmium, arsenic, lead, obviously mercury, they're also known as metalloestrogens. That should give you a heads up that they're endocrine disruptors, they're mimickers, and they're stronger binding to your own receptor sites than your own endogenous hormone function are. So if I have a patient who's like, we've done everything, they've cleaned everything up and suddenly we're like, why are your estrogens levels still so high? I'll often run a heavy metal test. And sure enough, we'll have, I mean, pretty much now, if you have breast cancer, you have cadmium toxicity. Really? That's what the studies have come to. Holy crap. If you look at, if you just Google cadmium toxicity, it's like, it's a death sentence right Where's there. Where's it coming from? What are the primary? Industry. Industry. So breathing it or soil. It. Exactly. It's in wow. our water source. So Sites like EWG, environmentalworkinggroup.org, they actually have a place in there, their water site that you can just type in your zip code, and then it'll pull up the database of your city water and tell you what you're exposed to. So like in my beautiful, picturesque mountain town of Durango, Colorado, people come from all over the world to visit. We have seven known carcinogens in our city drinking water with 24 questionable. Wow. And so that's the other thing is everyone thinks a Brita or refrigerator filter is going to do it. No. I mean, that's like, that's peeing in the wind, folks. So that's where you have to start investing in a whole house water filtration system and a drinking water system at the very least. Because I tell people your largest organ of absorption and elimination are your, is your skin. So if you're like, great, I'm drinking my Berkey water, but I'm going to go take a bath or sit in my swimming pool or my hot tub, you just like, again, negated all of that. So right. it's worth that investment now. We can even look at women's breast milk. This is actually in a lot of my environmental medicine circles are almost questioning whether we should have kids breastfeed because there's over 200 chemicals in our breast milk at any given time. And we're putting that in. You know, the solution to pollution is dilution. That's always been our mantra. And the problem is that we're getting so polluted, we're unable to dilute it anymore. And it's showing up everywhere. If your little water filter, if you just had a basic water filter from your fridge, great. It's taking out some chlorine you know, it might take out a few things. It's not taking out your neighbor's chemotherapy pee. It's not taking out your neighbor's hormone replacement therapy or their antidepressants or their antibiotics. You are drinking that, which is destroying your entire microbiome and damaging your immune system and your neurochemistry and your hormonal chemistry. It's messing with all of it. There's a huge study that came out at the end of last year on air pollution and its impact on the massive rate of growing numbers of glioblastoma in the UK. 
It's like, great, we're breathing it. The best thing that could probably have ever happened for us right now is COVID, giving us all a much needed deep breath of fresh air. I saw you make a post about that. That was great. I mean, it's so important. And you guys actually see it in the air. I think you can see less just smog. I'm in LA right now. Yeah. And my sister-in-law lives up in Altadena, Pasadena. And we take this huge walk every night. There's this hill that we go down. I've been going down this hill with her for years. I never knew that you could see LA, like downtown LA from her yard. From her life. Right. The first day I came, like last week when we took that walk, I look, I'm like, that's it. She goes, I know. She's like, I might see it once a year if that. She goes, I see it wow. every day now. That's amazing. That is amazing, these little changes. Yeah. You know, my husband and I coming through Nogales, for instance, just last week coming up, normally we sit there and we're sitting there for hours coming through border crossing. And it's so toxic because of all the plants. We have so many industries right at the border because we can't manufacture it in the US, but we're certainly happy to shoot it a couple feet across the border and do it there. We would get so sick just sitting there. Nothing. It was clear as a whistle, the clearest the skies have ever been. We could have our windows down the whole time while we're waiting in line for four hours to get through the border crossing. We were shocked. You could mm-hmm. see no, like you could see it instead of it being clothed in smog. I mean, these are the weird things. Like we are not paying attention to it. And when you start to look at the particulates and what that's doing for lung cancer, which is the highest rate of cancer in the whole world. I don't know if you guys saw in the news this week, a, a, a butane lab, a butane vape lab just blew up in downtown LA and it was billowing massive smokes. So this is what we're putting guys into our butane Butane, like if you just Google butane and car- it's one of the top carcinogens known out there. The other highest source of cadmium, to your question earlier, cigarette smoke, first, second, and third hand. So smelling it in the upholstery of a Uber driver, or you're going to a, a bar where they might have a smoking section, but you're definitely getting second, third hand smoke from that. Like if you're still smoking, you have kids in your house and you go outside to smoke, they're still getting second hand or third hand off it. How can we get rid of it? So is that mostly through sweating? Is that sauna? And so it's got to start to go into, you can get some liberated with sauna. You can get some, it will break down in water. Okay. So some will come through the kidneys and some will come through the liver. So some will be broken down via fat emulsification and some will be broken down through water. So you have to hit it from both. So really aggressive hydration and saunaing. And also that's where you want to get your fat storage down. You want to get your body fat composition below, like for women below 25% to prevent risk factors of all cause mortality. And for men below 20%, these are the aims that we shoot for. And then you want to make sure you don't have a storage for that stuff. And then you want binders to help get it out. Because once you liberate it, it starts to circulate and then can cause problems again. So you want to bind it and get the heck out of there. Make sure you're pooping like a champ. You know, for those of you who aren't pooping every day, you've got to kick that up two, three times a day would probably be best. Every time you put something in, it should be coming out just like your dog as she came on cue right then. Exactly. (laughs) So it's like, put it in, something should leave the building. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So you said binders, any suggestions on what you would use there? You could use good old plain charcoal as well. Daily? Yeah. A lot of my patients do, especially How they much? Have, like, if I always get the the capsulated, you know, activated charcoal capsules just from like Rite Aid. It doesn't have to be high fancy, highfalutin stuff. And a lot of patients take two to four of those capsules once to twice a day, 30 minutes before any medications or supplements or food and up to in two hours after. So you're not blocking or absorbing out what you're trying to get from your nutrients, your medications. That seems to be a good strategy. The other thing I use a lot of, our company out there, Quicksilver Scientific, I really like his detox binder. It's really good. It's got a mix of some charcoal and bentonite and fiber, but it also has some like fulvic and humic acid in there as well. That's what folks like Dr. Huber and Stephanie Sinop, they like the fulvic acid and the humic acid for these things. 
some people just use good old psyllium or even ground flax seeds. Anything to just help you bind stuff and carry it out of the building is key. So a lot of my folks who are eating carnivore or keto are not getting enough fiber. So if you aren't evacuating well, you're going to need to kick up your fiber and other sources. Yes, can it affect your ketones? But if you start to become more metabolically flexible, it won't. Okay, so over time, you could eat a pile of fiber and it shouldn't affect you. When you become more metabolically flexible, you shouldn't be pulled out of ketosis from a few leafy greens or a big old scoop of some good finding fiber. What type of testing do you recommend for heavy metals? Do you do hair or are you doing... So hair is not... I'm trying to be careful because you probably people who use this that listen, it's actually considered kind of bogus. Okay. Okay. There's information there. It can be part of it. So like Quicksilver Scientific, they have a tri-speciated mercury test. They're looking at various forms of mercury, where it's coming from. He looks at hair, urine, and blood. That's stinking awesome. Then usually I look at like Great Plains Laboratory. I'll use theirs for just looking at urine or organic acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can look at it, but they also just have a heavy metal toxicity. Oh, profile, they do. Which is great. Now, a lot of people like things like Genova or some of the others, but those usually require a provocation agent, which is something like EDTA or something that you take to help basically pull it out of hiding to throw it into the urine so you can see it. Now, in my patient population and in my personal experience, that's a really bad idea because we don't know people's kidney function. We don't know a lot of different factors that could actually shut them down. So for me, if I took a provocation agent, I would end up in the hospital because I have poor kidney function because of too much gadolinium poisoning, thanks to the MRIs I did early on in my diagnosis. So now I have 40 and 70% kidney function. So I know my creatinine, I know my EGFR, I know my 24-hour protein. I know all of those factors that if I put in a little bit of a chelator like that, a provocation chelator, it will kill me. There are a lot of patients walking around with, with sub-functioning kidney function. You don't want to do that. That's why I prefer Quicksilver or Great Plains Laboratory without the provocation. You can get enough information to know. If you're seeing anything on those tests, if you brought on a chelate, like a provocation, you're going to see a lot more. So I kind of, in my mind, double it because if I'm seeing that much spilling out on its own accord without being provoked, then I know there's a lot more in hiding. And right. we'll see that over time. When you start to pull it out and you test down the road, you're like, oh, look, we're still pulling a ton out. And you're like, well, why am I still I'm like, because you're pulling it out of hiding now. Yeah. So potentially good and bad, right? So we want to pull it out, but how do we then get it out? So at that point, it's just like you got to increase elimination through sweat, through hydration, yeah. through yeah. Um, yeah. stool. You can do enemas, you can do colonics. Again, if you have that, make sure you're breathing. There's our breath. Get the lungs going. That's where exercise is your friend, not overdoing it. I love like the Buteco breathing methods and the Wim Hof mm-hmm. methods of breath that really perfuses you. Some people kind of groove out on things like taking some niacin, which is also great for your metabolic function, which can strongly, you need, you need a flushing kind. Got to get that strong vasodilation can be very scary and uncomfortable for people, but it will strongly perfuse and push your capillaries, which will also help you dump. That's where a lot of your octave gases and things are exchanged. So it's really nice to utilize that resource as well. So I'm one of the freakers. So I love to take a gram of niacin and hop in the sauna. That's an old Hubbard protocol. Don't yeah. start there. You guys will curse me to the end. It feels like you're dying. A gram, just a gram? Come on. I, well, I, I think three grams. <laughs> I was going to say, you're taking more than that. I didn't want to encourage your listeners to be like, Meh. Yeah, so, three grams. Now that's, that's like crawling in your own skin, right? It is. It's kind yeah. of awesome. And then there's people who hate it and there's people like me who kind of love it because I know what's happening. So when I understand what's happening, it's enjoyable. When you don't, you literally think you're dying. So <laughs> not for faint of heart. Yeah. Right. How often are you doing your saunas? I do my saunas when I'm home five to seven days a week. Wow. When I'm on the road, I try and bring up a sweat in, in other ways or find if I can find a local 
sauna place there. When I'm on the road, if I'm lucky enough, I can't get a sauna. I can usually find a cryotherapy place now. So I'll do that just because I can go three minutes of my life and it's over. You know, that's kind of nice because it has a different, it has a similar mechanism of helping my body like contract and release, you know, of all the lymphatics with that cold hormesis and then the, the vasodilation that comes after getting really cold. That's really powerful old nature cure therapy. I'm the person who also ends every single shower and I have for almost 30 years in cold. And I often pump it back and forth with hot and cold to keep my lymphatics going. And when you end your shower on cold, you get out and you're already naturally warm and sweating typically because you're vasodilated now and everything's kind of leaving the building. So those are just cool little strategies, you know, available to you for free if you don't have access to the tools of a sauna or whatnot. But a lot of people are like I saw Ben recently doing a cool thing on turning your biomat into a little far infrared sauna or the little portable saunas like the Relax Sauna brand and a few others that are really small. I mean mine carries what we take down to Mexico, I carry in a little bag. So I take my sauna down there. I take my juve light, I take my vibe. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, right? The Beverly Hillbillies when we live half the year in Mexico and half the year in the US. And right. I still want my daily little biohacks. What I find now is I really don't need to take those anymore because now I'm out every day. You know, I feel like my vibe plate is being on the paddleboard. I feel like I'm getting my negative ions on from just walking on the ocean and being in a giant Epsom salt bath of the salt water, being out in the sunshine, sweating in that because of the humidity. So I'm realizing I probably don't have to keep schlepping my stuff back and forth because I tend to get it more from nature. When I'm down there, than I do back home. Isn't it amazing how it's already built in, right? Right. It's like, hmm, we learned these crazy biohacks from something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dr. Nash, that was absolutely phenomenal and so much information. Thank you for yeah. joining us. Where can our listeners learn more from you? Please check me out. At, I've got a couple places you can find me just under Dr. Nisha Winters is one of my Facebook pages. You can also find my book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, also on that. And on Instagram, I think I'm Dr. Nasha Winters there as well. I'm terrible with technology, but I'm always trying to post things out there. Our website, drnasha.com, is loaded with hundreds of podcasts and interviews and blogs. There's a ton, right? Mm-hmm, so we have little freebies for you to even like, let's say you do just get diagnosed with cancer, what to do, where to go. And then we were going to hit on some things on the vagal nerve podcast, but that yeah. we might have to do for another discussion, but that's coming up. We will soon. do it. Listeners. But we, everyone can watch you at the Body, Mind, and Vagal Nerve Conference, which is oh, we'll yeah. link to in the show notes. Yourself and a bunch of other experts talking about the vagal nerve, because as I said, that's a huge area of interest for me. But thank you so much. And I think everyone should definitely look for your information. So grateful. Everyone be well. Thanks. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Hopefully you enjoyed my conversation with Nasha Winters. As I promised, a huge amount of value. She's a brilliant lady with a great energy and a great attitude. And just one of those type of people that you just want to be around. You know, she's got so much value. And I know she provides so much perspective, having worked with thousands of people around the world. So thank you, Nasha, for being a guest on the show and telling us about how you survived cancer on numerous occasions and why you think that happened and ultimately how we can all learn to keep cancer and other illnesses at arm's length. Super grateful for your time and super grateful for the listener's time. Thank you guys for being here. I know you have a choice. Every day when you wake up, you get to choose what you put into your mind and we are doing our best to curate the best information to help you sift through the noise because there is a lot of noise out there, isn't there? There's a lot of people trying for your attention. There's a lot of people trying to give you whether it's worthwhile or not. It maybe remains to be seen, but we chose to be here with us and we're so grateful for that, guys. Thank you. If you're a fan of the podcast, we would always appreciate you subscribe. If you're the type of person who likes to help others, please don't forget to share this podcast with somebody else that you know and love will 
benefit or at least resonate with our mission to live our greatest life in a body we love. And one final shout out to our sponsors, the Fresh Press Olive Oil Club, which is something that I get sent to my house four times a year, get three bottles. Actually, I doubled it up. I get six just because it's just so fantastic. And I suggest you guys head over to GetFresh35, GetFresh35.com, get hooked up with your bottle of olive oil for one dollar. If you want to learn more about olive oil and why it's so amazing, don't forget to check out our episode, a recent episode with TJ, who is the owner of Fresh Press Olive Oil Club. He is the olive oil hunter who travels the world finding the best quality stuff so we get to enjoy it in the comfort and safety of our homes. Guys, have a wonderful day. Thank you for being here as always. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.